Welcome to Beyond Dollars and Cents. This is Holland Henderson, and this is the Risk and Reward Podcast. I have a special guest here. Uh, he's not really a guest because he's uh, pretty consistently on the show, but uh, we're, we're moving away a little bit from what he normally does into some other other items. I'm very excited about it. But today we have Chris Hammond. So, Chris, who are you and what do you do? Thanks for having me today, Holland. Um, so, Chris Hammond, I work at Allen & Company with Holland, and uh, I'm an advisor and portfolio manager and recently started a new blog. So I'm excited to kind of talk a little bit about that. Uh, some people may have had a chance to read it, but uh, we try to take a little bit of a different approach to kind of how to interpret the news and, and some things that get talked a, a lot about, but maybe not in uh, 100% the most accurate way. So uh, <laughs> contrary to commentary, we'll, we'll kind of dive into that a little bit, but, uh, but maybe a little bit of college football first yeah a little bit of college football um so we got some shakeups going on right now so what are your thoughts on uh conference shifts and movements and what that's going to do to college football yeah so so kind of taking the same same approach of ultimately what we're going to dive into in terms of you know markets and economics and all that fun stuff i think uh you know ultimately kind of when we're recording this some news just came out in terms of conference realignment so washington and oregon in college uh are going to go to the big 10 and then the big 12 just swallowed the four corners so <laughs> you know i guess the the commissioner uh, brett yormark just went to the four corners where you can touch them all and just you know kind of like thanos just took them all into the big 12 so anyway so now arizona arizona state utah and colorado are going to uh the big 12 which i grew up in kansas city so Colorado Colorado as a Big 12 team makes sense to me. Um, that, that's kind of in line with uh, with how I grew up with the Big 12 North, it used to be called. But um, but the others, you know, I think ultimately the beauty of college football and why you and I enjoy talking about it is the regionality of the sport, is the pageantry of the sport, is the, you know, it's not a professional league. There's more emotion and fandom and, you know, irrationality to it than the NFL. If you just care about the best football product, well, then you just turn on Sunday football. But with the transfers and the NIL money and the fact that these big checks are getting written to the SEC, you know, Disney's paying people. and So what, what happens with that? I mean, do you think it turns into more of a pro-style league? Because you can just transfer, you enter the transfer portal pretty much whenever you want to, it feels like. And the commitment of that player doesn't stay around for four years. Yeah, I think, um, and this is actually a good historical element and, and maybe leads us into some other stuff. A lot of times throughout history, there's a pendulum. And it starts swinging one way, and it usually swings too far that direction before it starts coming back. I think that's what we've seen in college football where um, the two, you know, the, the one group that really hasn't been considered are the fans yeah. for the last decade. It's all been uh, media rights holders, university presidents, and and the players in terms of players' rights and NIL and all, all that kind of thing. I think you're going to see the pendulum shift back in terms of player control. And in exchange for things like NIL, the players are going to have more requirements against them. And then I think on the other side of it, we've, we've I think, just hit the tipping point where a lot of these conference commissioners, university presidents, will realize how close they are to alienating some fans. Mm. And at the end of the day, the only reason all that media rights money is there is because people love college football. So, Do you think the booster money is big enough to shake those trees as well? 
I think it comes out of, um, you know, this gets into the idea of supply and demand. For a decade, all the money from boosters went into facilities. Yeah. You couldn't play, pay, pay the players. Well, now it's going into NIL. So I don't necessarily think that is a big change in departure from, from kind of the structure on the booster side. Um, I think there's still going to be a lot of money for, you know, if you own a uh, a successful lumber company in Auburn, Alabama, I yeah. think you're, you're still going to want to see, you know, War Eagle win on Saturdays and, uh, you know, like likewise across the country. Yeah, and I think you, you're going to end up – the thing that's exciting to me – Right. The concern to me is obviously it becoming more of a pro style league where people can just transfer around and there's no, you know, beat your chest type of loyalty. But also there's some really exciting stuff of new rivalries coming out of the woodwork from these mega conferences just merging together. I mean, Oklahoma and Texas are not just the only powerhouses now that when they join the SEC, it's going to be, you know, now they've got real competition and so that 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 to me is pretty cool, and I hope that they ended up cleaning up the conference lines as well. Yeah, you know, just kind of thinning it out, and it's not not a bunch of different conferences that you can actually determine who the true champion is for a year. I think that's what every college football fan really wants is it's definitive. Yeah, the the hard part about football, um, and this is actually an interesting statistic. The um, and I'll get the details wrong, but it be it'll be pretty close. The spread in the national championship game last year between Georgia and TCU, which if anybody's listened to our, <laughs> our previous uh, you know pod- podcast, they'll know I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan. Um, the spread going into that game was, let's say, 14 points, uh, two touchdowns. That equates to, you know, let's say Georgia had a, you know, and I'm making up numbers a little bit here, a two-thirds or a 75% chance to win. That is the same likelihood that an opening round one versus 16 matchup has yeah. in NCAA basketball. So so another way to say that is the favorite in the national championship football game between the two best teams in the entire country, yeah. one was still overpowered to such a degree it was like a one versus 16 matchup in college basketball. And that's what people have a hard time grasping their hands around when you hear people say, why don't we just structure it like basketball? Yeah. Well, because you will see the most just absolute splattering of outcomes. <laughs> and And what's really interesting is you actually wind up with it being less likely you get a TCU to the national championship game the more games you add. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, football is a game of probabilities and you reduce the effect of, uh, you know, what some people call bounce of the ball. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if it's truly really hard to get there, luck is a bigger fa- factor, whereas the more games you add, the more it is just a result of skill. It's like flipping a coin one time versus 500 times. Yeah. Well, you're you're going to get about 50-50 the more, the more times you flip, but you might flip three, three heads in a row if you only flip it three times. I mean, it, yeah, it's... It's amazing on how much the emotion swings in this too, which might be part of the play of college football, right? Maybe that's part of the attraction is the craziness of it all. But also, you know, the more games you add, definitively player health comes into concern, right? Because, and that's the reason why so many people get to opt out of their bowl games and, you know, playoff games or whatever, because they can see, you know, the finish line at the other end is so much bigger. So the more games you add, that has to be a factor as well. Yep, absolutely. And, uh, you know, what I've seen from 
some of the teams, particularly those not as upfront NIL heavy as they say NFL is greater than NIL. <laughs> and uh, if you look at some of the first round guaranteed contracts, it's a lot more than than what people are talking about in terms Golly. of the uh, the NIL level. Still pro football, man. Golly, it's so much fun to watch. So let's talk about your blog, right? So I don't I don't want to delay it. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, contrary to commentary. Yeah. So so like you said, uh, we we settled on the title contrary to commentary. And really, the idea for this blog came from some things that, um, you know, we'd kind of batted around the office and ultimately, actually, my high school history teacher. Uh, so so Mr. Uh, Matt Christensen um, taught us and, and he had a line when we first started class. And it was the more you understand about history, the less you see white and black and the more you say see shades of gray. Mm. And to me that, you know, what's it been, you know, well over a decade at this point, but um, for for a lot of years that stuck with me. And I think, um, you know, in the news cycle we live in, not many people want to talk about or take the time to understand Shades of Grey to a discussion or a topic. And normally it turns into white and black. Well, this blog is about really diving in and saying, what is that truth serum in terms of, you know, if you inject truth serum into an idea, into a topic, what would it really say, kind of examining those shades of gray? And then we take on kind of all of the most top talked about topics, um, whether it's gold, whether it's the U.S. dollar, whether it's some other things that we may talk about, um, you know, what, in my opinion, kind of really is are those shades of gray. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and we're going to wrap up this segment and we're going to be right back. And we're back with Beyond Dollars and Cents. This is Risk and Reward Podcast, and I have my very good friend, Chris Hammond, uh, still joining us. And so uh, one of the things I have to tell you about this blog is that I'm a little frustrated because whenever I read something like this and then you're like, man, that's a great idea. I wish I would have come up with that and wrote it. So I just wanted to, I feel like I had to air the grievances of that. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I'm, my goal is just to keep you on your toes, keep you having to just work that little bit harder. Man, it's such, uh, and I want to encourage our listeners to to go and listen to it. And that's not just a plug. That that really is a genuine, it is rich environment to learn something. And the cool part is you're starting a podcast too. So this is kind of the, what is it, the maiden voyage. I'm sorry, I'm starting to think of my nautical terms here. <laughs> the maiden voyage. And you're going to start your own podcast and it's going to be airing here on the radio station. So it's, it's great, man. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited for you. So let's go ahead and get into the the meat of this. How do you see commentary feeding into the daily lives of your average investor? Absolutely. So ultimately, um, and we've actually talked about this before, the entire media media ecosystem today is built around clicks, is built around eyeballs, is built around engagement, is built around things like um, daily active users, amount of time spent on a platform because that drives ad dollars, which are really the lifeblood of media overall. All of that is inconsistent with being a good investor. And those shades of gray that we talked about in the first uh, segment, which are really the idea behind this blog, those shades of gray don't play well in the traditional media ecosystem. Mm. And so really the entire premise of, of this blog series is tackling hard topics um, that don't necessarily play well in, in politics, because a lot of the times, I, my opinion won't be all one way or all the other. 
um, or take tackling topics that are talked about a lot on, let's say, CNBC or Fox Business or CNN Money, um, but oftentimes with a white or a black take and really talking through those shades of gray. It's almost like the more definitive that you have to say something, that's whenever people are going to listen, right? So that kind of leads me into my next question. Do you feel like this is more um, trying to find edge information, right? That dark area over there that we don't want to look at. I'm trying to find what the sneaky part is, or is it more of Joe Cantori, the storm's coming and you just need to get updated. Like I need to, I need to batten down the hatches, seal up the windows and get ready for it. I mean, which, what do you think is the thing that cultivates us to listen to it and take it as definitive? Yeah. I think it's it's a couple of things, and it gets into psychology. One is confirmation bias. Okay. We like information that confirms what we already think. Mm. Generally, we like to live in echo chambers that just regurgitate the sound of what we already think. We don't like information that is um, contrary to, to what we believe. As humans, we're not wired for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a fact of the human condition. Um, and so the, the first two topics that I took on in, in the blog were talking about the role of gold for investors. Well, if you, if you watch cable television on certain <laughs> channels, about every third ad is selling gold. If you're sick at home and watching daytime television, exactly. <laughs> you're going to get sold some gold. Exactly. And the next one is about the decline or, or lack thereof of the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. My take is that there there are elements of truth in in all of those narratives, but not very many people ask why or examine um, the truth behind something. And so that can lead to radically different conclusions and and we can get into that or or just kind of talk high level. But um, you know, I think that's that's a lot of the reasoning behind it. Yeah, and I'd say also, um, you know, we have a bad habit in our country, and I know that I'm guilty of it too, of reading the headlines and taking the headlines for face value, right? And not really taking a deep dive into it. And, you know, the difference between a head, reading a headline versus a book, right? Becoming more of an expert uh, on a topic. And I think the more you drill down in education, the more definitively, you know, y- you understand what's at play. And I think that's, you know, what your teacher is talking about is more you go down, the more un- you understand. It's a it's a faceted view, right? Not a fascinating, it is fascinating, but it is more, there are so many different shades of what's going on and so many other things that are at work that it's not necessarily this one definitive thing that you're talking about or, or what's being presented. So my question to you is, uh, is is it a good idea to bet on the end of the world? We were actually talking about the lottery, right? You know yep. what's the, what's you know the you know whenever it gets up to these big amounts, you know should you buy a ticket, right? So if you're betting on the end of the world, it's more likely, you know, or not more likely, but you know how random of a possibility that is. You know, whenever we're looking at some of these behaviors, should we bet on the end of the world? So that's that's a that's a very thought provoking question. You could argue if if the end of the world is coming, one of the best things you can do is um, e- examine your faith. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, and I'm not I'm not necessarily advocating for one you know one, one extreme or the, or the other in that world, but uh, but that might be the only thing that yeah. can save you, depending yeah. on on how that comes about. But um, you know, Warren Buffett has my favorite quote on on the end of the world, and it's that it only happens once, so you're better off betting against it. Yeah, this comes out a lot when we talk about gold. 
because gold, um, and I talk about this in one of the blogs, uh, there's something called the Lindy effect. Mm-hmm. And it describes the, the fact that the longer something has been around, the longer its future expected lifespan is. So something that's only been around for a year, you really shouldn't exist, expect that it'll be around for 500 years. Right. But gold, something that's been around for thousands of years, is vastly more likely to be around for thousands of more years. And so people turn to it as a, as a kind of safe haven or a kind of catch-all. It's really a catch-all for everyone's worst fears. And the reality is, if you really start thinking about it, okay, let, let's play the apocalypse through. Let's play worst case scenario. Yeah. You need bread. You need food. What is a gold bar going to do? Yeah. In a, in, in a place where there is no economy, how is someone going to say, assign that value and that's the thing that's going to get you? Yeah, I'll take that and I'll give you a bushel of corn so that your family can survive. Is basically yeah. what you're saying. Yep. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, you, you could take that a further step and say, okay, well, well, uh, you know, uh, doomsday prepper sheds might be a better investment yeah. than gold. I'm not necessarily advocating that. I haven't, I haven't written a, a, a blog post in zo- <laughs> examining the ROI of buying uh, some seed and, yeah, and some, yeah, keeping of, it in a shed of, of storm shelters. And, you know, uh, um, I have tried some of those. Have, have you tried some of those, um, like freeze-dried camping meals that stay yeah. good for like 50 years. Some of those are actually pretty good. That's not bad. I it brings me food. back to my childhood, like hamburger helper, helper style. Yeah. is a, I mean, hey. of Vienna sausages? Yeah, man. Absolutely. I mean, you know, whenever the taste buds were not as refined as they are today, you know, what's a Vienna sausage versus a charcuterie board, right? I mean, exactly. they're basically the same Who amongst <laughs> us hasn't put a Vienna sausage on a charcuterie board? That's right. I mean, a Polk County charcuterie board for sure. So what is the real value of of gold and precious metals. Yeah, so um, ultimately, and and this gets into kind of my my writing structure and how I think about things, there's two angles that I want to answer in every one of these blogs, which is what my opinion of of the truth is, which is this idea of being, being the truth serum to something, as well as taking the extreme example and saying, when could that be right? Like what set of circumstances has to come about in order for the worst fears today to be realized? Because it's also, you know, if all you if all you ever say is, well, it's complicated. Well, it depends. Well, that's really just a way of not answering the question. Um, ultimately, in my opinion, the best role for precious metals, um, and, and this depends on an individual's circumstances and risk tolerance and all, and all of those sorts of things, uh, so this isn't a recommendation, but gold historically performs best in two circumstances have to be present. One, inflation is high and it's usually increasing, meaning the rate of change, you know, we've gone from two to four to six to eight. And so this was, let's say, between late 2021 and mid 2022, that kind of an environment, as well as low interest rates or low real interest rates, which is the level of interest rate after you take into account inflation. And basically what that means is if prices are going up by 8% and interest rates are only 2%, well, the value of gold is likely to appreciate larger than a lot of times fixed income because interest rates are low. And in a lot of those cases, even the value of stocks, because the effect of inflation can hurt valuations or or PE ratios of stocks. That historically is the best role for gold. And what that means in terms of a portfolio is it's best when added to in a smaller amount 
a large collection of a diversified portfolio because it performs well when both stocks and bonds do not. That's what makes it beneficial to an overall portfolio. But by itself, history shows maybe it's been done okay relative to cash, but if you invested that cash in bonds, it's largely not been as as good of an investment. And if you look at it versus the stock market, it's been significantly trounced in terms of returns. And that makes sense because companies are focused on profit. They're creating a product. They're creating innovation. They're creating an improvement in living standards. Gold is really about staying level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in my opinion, the best role is when it's added to a collection of diversified assets. Cool. All right, we're going to take our next break, and we'll be right back with Chris Hammond. And we're back uh, with Chris Hammond of Allen & Company, fellow, brother, there we go, friend, financial advisor. All right, so uh, let's talk a little bit more about, um, contrary to commentary uh, in your blog, some of the things that that you've already posted, and, and we'll just kind of hit them at a high level. Yeah. Let's talk about digital currencies, because I have people calling me saying, is this the end of my money? What should I do? So my third post, and by the time this airs, it'll probably be fully kind of released, is about uh, central bank digital currencies. And so most of the listeners here have probably heard of cryptocurrencies or digital currencies. The most popular one is Bitcoin. You may have heard of Ethereum. Not a recommendation on on good, bad, or indifferent on any of those, but but those are kind of the most widely known. Um, in some areas of kind of the media ecosystem, it's even been written about in the Wall Street Journal, this idea of central bank digital currencies. So, so central banks or the U.S. Federal Reserve using the backbone of kind of the idea behind some of these cryptocurrencies in a way for the U.S. dollar. And so some of that is actually starting to happen. Um, so there's a new system called the FedNow uh, system, which is a, a kind of the next generation wire system that's starting to roll out a little bit. Um, but that's a far cry between where we're at, where maybe we're going here shortly. And then some of the takes on kind of this idea of central bank digital currencies are really about um, the idea of social credit. And so social credit is um, something that's really come out in China and some of the more authoritarian worlds where effectively you're talking about government control and government leverage of currency and money to create certain activities or certain outcomes. Um, So in China, perhaps that looks like, well, um, if you violate a curfew, you can no longer use your bank account. I'm not saying that, that that happens, but that's the the kind of far reaches of what we're talking about here. The reality is we're, we're not there today. And, um, you know, if, if you kind of get into some of the stuff I talk about in the blog, um, I kind of lay out ultimately kind of how the U.S. financial system works, in my opinion, and the difference between some of those more far-reaching um, you know, more pessimistic takes on where this is headed versus, in my opinion, probably some good things that could come from this. So are we looking at intrusion or innovation? That's kind of the way that I would I would post this. So what what is the good news? What are things that are why would we do this? Yeah. So um, I'm going to call on another um, 
another thing that I learned in high school history class. I don't know whether this is the <laughs> wow. same history class, but uh, but Blue Valley Northwest High School in Overland Park, Kansas, should be really happy that I'm I'm giving them <laughs> at this least many their history. <laughs> at least their history department. Yeah, yeah. Send send your kids to be a husky, but. Um, you know, ultimately, one of the things that I, that I learned um, growing up is history and governance and all of these things are really a balance between liberty and safety. Hmm. It's a pendulum, just mm-hmm. like anything else. Look at 9-11. We had a lot of liberty leading up to 9-11. Ultimately, everybody fled to safety coming out of that. And then you've seen some pushback against things like the Patriot Act, things like Guantanamo Bay. I'm not making in... And, you know, a statement one way or the other on what's right or wrong, but there's been a a balance back and forth. It just starts to get questioned. Exactly. So the way that plays out today is really about the ability to find bad actors in a financial system. Mm -hmm. And so there are already a lot of systems designed to find bad actors in the financial system. There's things like OFAC. Mm -hmm. There are things like... Um, anti-money laundering checks. There are things like all uh, deposits into a bank greater than $10,000 have to be reported. Well, the benefit uh, is we get to take a class on this every year. Exactly. You can tell that I'm, I'm reading off the the HR and, uh, you know, the compliance, the, the, yeah, sheet. Yeah, the compliance sheet here. The reality is all these things already exist. And what gets talked about a lot in the central bank digital currency world is about the removal of physical U.S. dollars from the system, and that that creates more risk. It does if your goals are running contrary to what the overall government and the U.S. Constitution says is legal. So, for example, India has dealt with this for a long time, that there's so much black market commerce that occurs outside the financial system that's not taxed, that's Mm -hmm. tax evaded, that is illegal in nature, and it occurs in physical currency. It's much harder to do that in a digital ecosystem. So this balance occurs between, as a country, I think we'd all agree, well, we don't want things that are illegal to be happening. The easiest way to catch that is for those things to be trackable. Yep. Well, at the same time, we only, as citizens, want to grant the government so much intrusion into our lives. And that's where this healthy kind of ram, you know, battling really occurs, yeah. is how do you strike that right balance and empower the right people to have the right privileges without seeding what makes us American, which is individual liberty and uh, freedom of steep speech and the Bill of Rights and everything like that. And this, I mean, I, I think uh, this kind of comes back to some more topics that that you talk about, uh, you know, as far as the dying dollar, right? And, um, you know, gold-backed currencies, right? So, so let's talk about that a little bit. You know, where do you see the dollar going from here? Yeah, so um, I, I encourage everybody to go out and take a look at these blogs on on the Allen and Company website for for contrary to commentary. But ultimately, the first line of of my blog on on the U.S. dollar is the the uh, the tales of my death have been greatly exaggerated. So, <laughs> That's right. um, Mark Twain. Yeah. So so and and just about every Mark Twain quote wasn't actually a Mark Twain quote. quote so I don't know yeah. whether that one is or not. But um, but uh, we're, I think I attributed it to him. So. Ultimately, if you look at the data, um, you know, about the only currency that's really taken share from the U.S. dollar is the euro for trade that incurs within Europe's borders. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are, and this gets to what we were just talking about, if you are a country 
with goals diametrically opposed to the West, diametrically opposed to the U.S., you are actively looking at ways to not use the dollar. Mm -hmm. What occurred in terms of U.S.-Russian sanctions Mm -hmm. is a new development, and and it should not be overlooked. Yeah. But I think you have to ask yourself, is that a bad thing? Like, is it a bad thing that those that clearly, at least those in charge of those countries, I don't want to paint everybody with, with one brush, is it a bad thing if those people have a hard time operating in our world? Or do we really care if those countries, and, you know, let's kind of list some of them. So you have North Korea, you have Russia, you have China in a, in a lot of cases. Those are the countries that would be most pressing towards getting out of the petrodollar system, which, yeah. which you know, is a word that gets thrown around a lot in terms of U.S. dollar-denominated oil trade. Um Brazil is sometimes referenced, which is a, you know, I mean, we could spend 30 minutes talking about the nuances of Brazilian politics and economic policy, but nobody wants to hear that. (laughs) Um, You know, so there are some fringe countries that the U.S. and the West need to continually uh, invest into those relationships to to secure them. But I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that Iran doesn't enjoy the U.S. dollar system. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that those if those countries come together in in a unified front, do you think that that is enough power to kind of overthrow the stability of the dollar? Yeah. Um, ultimately, um, my opinion is that the beauty of America and the reason why the dollar is so... Um, useful is because it's trusted. The reason Mm -hmm. why it's trusted is the U.S. respects property rights. It was the first country to truly have a, you know, I mean, not to get into some of the civil liberty stuff, but generally speaking, um, respect the value of property and the right to own property, whether that's intangible or tangible, as well as a judicial system that is broadly considered fair. Those things have to be validated as decades go by. Um, That is what allows people, you know, let's take um, a Japanese gentleman and a German gentleman. They trust that transacting in that dollar will be respected by both parties. If there's a violation by either party, it can be adjudicated by the courts and will be adjudicated fairly. And that trust is what actually creates the value in the U.S. dollar system. I have a hard time believing that those, um, you know, transacting in yuan, uh, the Chinese currency, are going to have the same level of trust. And so really it winds up being, okay, China may be able to exert force over a relationship to have less trade be denominated in dollars because they're such a large consumer of whatever resource. But they don't – you can't just manufacture that trust. You have to actually – um, you know, be a living proof of it. And and I think, you know, especially over the last couple of years, if you look at what's happened with Chinese tech and a lot of these things, you know, that trust level is not there. Mm. All right, we're going to go ahead and take our next break and we'll be right back. And we're back uh, with Chris Hammond. So we're going to do something a little bit different that uh, I've never done in any of my other podcasts, but we're going to hand over the reins to you because you're starting your new podcast. So I want I want you, I am now the person being interviewed 
and the student becomes the master. Yes, yes. This is like uh, when you turn 15 and get your permit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, well, let's go on a joyride, everybody, shall we? There you go. So where I kind of wanted to start, and we may do a whole a whole kind of second, second feature podcast at some point to really dive into this, but I want to talk a little bit about how some of the ideas that we talked about in terms of what I kind of try to have the blog be about have impacted your career and what you see with your clients. So take this in whatever direction you'd like. Mm. How has your world as an advisor changed? If you go all the way back from when you were in the insurance industry to today, how do you see the world differently? Wow. that's So I, I would say this. I would say that as time goes on, and I started in the industry probably in a more official capacity where I wasn't in the background. I was at client facing back in 2004. So going through the 2008 financial crisis, going through the pandemic, you know, those would probably be the high points, but just learning behaviors along the way and really how cyclical they are, right? It's, it's kind of like um, every couple of years we have a new theme and that's been really extremely interesting whenever I speak to clients. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's hitting exactly what you're looking for, but it's it's almost as though the financial system goes through changes, obviously and clearly, but the way that we deal with money and the way that uh, we think about money is very similar, but very cyclical. Yeah. If you think about kind of the way you work with clients. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure some of the topics that even we've talked about today, you heard about in 2004, and some of them, like probably central bank digital currencies, Oh yeah, you may have not even talked to a single client about it. But how has the way you communicate with clients evolved, and what do you kind of view in terms of your principles and how you guide clients through some of these tough issues? Yeah. So I would think thinking back to 2004, it was like hunting with a black powder gun, right? Versus, you know, now you've got a machine gun, right? And what I mean by that is we're constantly feeding different, um, we're, we're constantly coming up against a bunch of different issues at a more rapid pace. Does that make sense? So it's not yeah. me hunting as much as it is you might you might get these questions semi periodically it wasn't consistent but now you know since 2004 now twitter is more of a usable thing mm-hmm. i saw this thing on t- tiktok or i saw this thing on instagram you know i was listening to the news so it was almost as though we had one type of thing to answer one you know radio or newspaper you know, that was our engagement with our clients from a perspective of their question. And now it's more of there's so much information that's flowing to our clients that we have to answer those questions. There's much more speculation. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really poignant kind of point. Kind of taking that a step further, I'm sure you probably field questions on, you know, everything from, you know, IRA contribution limits to mm-hmm. uh, what uh, what the next geopolitical move is. But if you were to provide me advice in terms of thinking about what topics should be a part of this blog, we, we spent a little bit of time talking about what I've already written about. Um, being somebody who's always talking to clients, always client-facing, mm. are there any topics that you feel like could use that level of a magnifying glass to, to really examine 
and dissect a little bit based off what you what you hear in in the types of conversations that you have with clients? Oh man, that's a that's a really interesting question. I think one topic would be what what is the flavor of the week, right? And what I mean by that is we like I said we go through sty- cycles where cannabis stocks or pot stocks were kind of the callback and then Recently, we went through a wave here, I remember, where people were consistently asking me, are 401ks good ideas? Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? And they start asking about using life insurance, which I'm a big proponent of life insurance. I'm not I'm not knocking it. I think that both you know, term and permanent have their place. But people were talking on TikTok about the value of permanent life insurance superseding the value of your um, 401k. It was just really interesting questions, yeah. right? And so what I'm saying, you know, just the engagement with social media and the fact that people can post or say whatever they want, and if they're not a financial advisor, it just kind of goes unchecked, yeah, right? So just these very uh, niche or niche uh, points of view that might work for 0.01% of the community, and then it's being magnified as everyone should do it. Yeah. What's always fascinated me, and I love that idea. I did not have kind of permanent life insurance and social media as a topic, but I love that because, you know, most listeners probably haven't dove as, as deep as, as you and I to see it, but it is prevalent it and is. it is a problem. Yeah. And it's really a problem for two reasons. One, what a lot of these posts will say is, um, well, a lot of rich people have permanent life insurance, so you should too. And that's that's convoluting correlation and causation. They're not rich because they had permanent life insurance. Right. It's, it's just because they own the insurance company. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the second part of it is um, that you're actually most able to say the most outlandish things on social media with complete certainty if you're completely unlicensed. Yes. And the more licensed you are, the more restricted you are in terms of what you can say. You are and, censured. And the entire idea behind this blog is about shades of gray, and that's the world we have to live in. It's not the world that social media promoters or even people that aren't licensed to sell, um, you know, the same types of products or, or services. They they don't necessarily get hold to the same bar, which I think is always well. Really to your point, I mean, if we have um, someone call us up and say, "Hey, I have this product here. What's your opinion of it?" And you're like, "No, no, I need to see exactly what you have because I can't answer to it." You know, and and, and that's it's almost the more you know, the more you have to hold back an opinion until you have as much of the complete story as you possibly can. Absolutely. Well, I think what I would like to do in honor of leading a segment here, but on your podcast, is actually turn it around and ask you some closing questions. Oh, perfect. I love it. So I'm going to use the same questions that that you always have and listeners will be familiar from the Risk and Reward podcast. What are you reading or listening to right now? Ooh, so I just finished a book yesterday and it was absolutely phenomenal. And it's called The Hail Mary Project. And it's written by Andy Weir, who is the author of The Martian. So I got I got um, on a kick of reading a bunch of factual and motivational books, like how to run your business and how to help with nonprofits. And and I ended up reading Shoe Dog, which is a great book about Nike. And then I read, you know, another book um, here recently, which was, uh, gosh, what is the name of that book? It was a fantastic book, too. 
But I needed something a little bit more light and frothy because I kind of started getting down into factual things. Mm -hmm. And it just, it absolutely delivered. And I don't want to say anything about what the book is about. It's kind of sci-fi, like a very much like The Martian. Phenomenal book. And it's an easy read. I just blew right through it. And I'm a slow reader. You know, I like to, it's kind of like a good meal. I take my time, right? It's not like fast food, but it was just so, so it was such a fun read that I didn't want to go to bed. I just wanted to keep reading it. And you know, that's a good book whenever you read it. Give everybody the name of that book one more time. It's called The Hail Mary Project by Andy Weir. It's a fantastic book. Awesome. Yep. If you if you if you like space, I had told my wife kind of what it was about a little bit, and she was like, "I wouldn't like that." I was like, "Yeah, no, you would never read this book." That's um, awesome. Yeah. And the uh, the last question here: What are you most encouraged about in your work or in the world around you? Well, right now, at the time of recording, school is starting back up, right? And um, having small children, and a lot of people think. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, it's exciting to have your kids back at school so you don't have to deal with them. And honestly, that's not, that's not my position. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to miss my kids not being readily available all the time, but I will say that I like us a lot when we're on a schedule. Mm. And so we just become, you know, it's fun to have summer come around and then you just kind of throw the cares away and you get to go have fun. But then it's just a really good reminder that, Hey, you get, you know, every weekend has a start date. And then just they're that much older, and it's super encouraging to watch them process information at a different speed, right? And then just them get used to what does it look like to go back to work. And and it's a fun time. I mean, it's an exciting time here, um, you know, just to get back to a schedule. That's awesome. Yep. So am I closing it out or are you yeah, closing it out? I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you close right, it out. Right. And, uh, and the next one, uh, I'll, I'll lead. Well, you got to have me on your podcast so I can close yours or you can close it out and then I get to be there. So, uh, again, this, uh, Chris Hammond, financial advisor with Allen and company, uh, we left a lot of topics that you wrote about in contrary to commentary still on the table. So please go to alleninvestments.com, go to our blogs and media section, it's right there in alphabetical order. So go take a look at it, read it. You will learn something and then subscribe to it. Um, but thank you again. This is Holland Henderson from Allen Investments. And until next time. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Investment advisory services offered through Allen & Company of Florida, LLC, Allen & Co., and its affiliate LPL Financial, LLC, LPL, Registered Investment Advisors. Securities offered through LPL, member FINRA, SIPC.